Well, hello again. My name is Mr. Jeff Watson, and you are listening to the Inspired Minds podcast. It's a show that looks into the soul of art. I hope, if I can pull this off correctly, that's kind of the idea. Look behind the scenes with creative types, <laughs> creative types, creative people. And it is, has been fun so far. Done some fantastic interviews. Thanks to the magical and talented executive producer of the whole shebang, Mr. Michael Simpson, old friend of mine, fantastic writer, screenwriting, creative screenwriting, and all drill and all kinds of sites. So good man gets me in touch with some great people, and I have been thrilled to do it. The whole thing is about stories and storytelling and meaning in life, if, if we can get there, which we do sometimes, I think. And that is what it is. This next episode is with a gentleman by the name of Bobby Roth. And Bobby Roth has directed about every single TV show you've ever seen in your life starting in 1984, including the kickoff Miami Vice. Then that went to Crime Story, and then that went to Beverly Hills 90210, and then V, and then Lost, and then Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> like Just incredible, this guy's uh, resume. But we also discussed uh, film and literature, and it was a fantastic conversation. He has also made some very personal movies about loss. I've experienced loss, as many of us have, so we discussed that as well, um, and how to transcend loss through art and, uh, and, and just experience around us. Um, and that is what happened. Uh, there's even a Nabokov reference in there somewhere, so it's a little heady, but I hope it's fun. I had a blast doing it. As always, and as always, I hope you do too. There you go. So, hello, Mr. Bobby Roth. Say hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this, uh, Bobby. <laughs> I know. Um, it's my pleasure, Jeff. I, I hear nothing but good things about you and your show from friends. Oh, well, I pay people very well, clearly. Um, I, I really want to thank you. This this is fantastic. And I want to start off with this question that I first question I asked a lot of people, which is simply, what was the first film you ever saw and why? Wow. It's, it's a good question. Uh, I, I have no idea what the first, I mean, I guess some people were, were really uh, uh, imprinted by a movie of their childhood, but I, I really don't. Um, my mom and dad loved movies, but they had nothing to do with the business. And I don't remember any early work really affecting me. Uh, I think, uh, I kind of took a circuitous route to the film business and it wasn't based on any one movie. So what were the movies? Maybe if you can give me some examples then, just things that resonated with you perhaps throughout your youth. Well, I, I like movies didn't really I mean in my day you had to go to the cinema to see a movie yep. and um, so my parents had very mainstream taste I mean the, the big thing that I remember is my mom keeping me out of school so I would go with her to see Cleopatra <laughs> and, it opened. and uh, I think that was in like 1962 uh, uh-huh. And she was a big Liz Taylor fan. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think of that as an event, but I think of it more as like a day out of school going to the Brown Derby in Hollywood with my mom. 
and they were going to the movie. And, oh. Uh, yeah, so that was that was um, that was a lot of fun. That's before your time, but uh, not that much. Let's, let's be honest here. But my parents, <laughs> my parents like movie people, and the the funny thing is, even though they had nothing to do with the business, uh, my mom always had actor friends, and uh, when I was a kid, uh, Roger Moore, who ended up becoming sure. the saint before he sure. was then 007, was like an out-of-work actor hanging out at my parents' house. Oh, really? um, and uh, I didn't know what these people even did, really. I, I, I really didn't know much about the film business. My parents um, were very straight-ahead, mainstream people, and uh, I I remember they read mysteries, but not not great books. And I think everything changed for me about my senior year of high school, where I wasn't a very good student, and suddenly I started. I had one English teacher who who liked my writing, my essay writing, and I started to read. Uh, and I think my intro into filmmaking came more from literature. And huh. uh, and in in uh, the time that I was going to school, the late 60s for high school, um, I started to read Herman Hesse, and, huh. uh, and then I then I went off to college, and I I got very into Russian uh, Russian novels in translation, like Dostoevsky and Nabokov. Yeah, exactly. And um, and I and I. I don't know. It just there was just this idea. I think it was a lot of it was timing. Is that um, uh, my junior year? I transferred to Berkeley because I thought maybe I could write. Maybe I could be a novelist. And uh, and it was a great time. It was 1971, and uh, you know everything seemed possible. Uh, you know the advent of birth control pills made oh, yeah. uh, free free love a big. Uh, a, a big event in the lives of most young men because uh, sure. women were all uh, all into the equals in every sense of it, including the seeking of pleasure. Yep. And um, so that was really it was it was kind of this giant gestalt about you know rock and roll literature and then movies and and particularly foreign films because. In Berkeley, it was quite popular to go to see, you know, the Italian neorealists or, um, uh, you know, the French New Wave or, you know, all, all kinds of people making movies that I don't believe I ever would have seen under, you know, traditional circumstances, but everything was opening up. And so for that little window that I was lucky enough to be in, uh, I got very excited at the idea of storytelling uh, via cinema. Incredible. So this leads me to the other, my next obvious question, I guess is, and maybe not obvious, is what's the difference for you between writing for, like writing a script and writing a novel or any kind of traditional literature? Or is there one? Um, well, that's, that's a good and very big question. I mean, uh, I the the main problem I had with novel writing was not just that it was difficult and needed tremendous amount of discipline and a, a great ability to be alone, but um, uh, I needed I I've always needed uh, I I think only now 
in this day and age do I realize I probably had some form of childhood uh, ADHD. Hmm. And uh, I needed stimulus. And so the great thing about filmmaking is there were other people there and there was something physical coming back at you besides just words on a page. There were these images. And uh, I really, I think I had seven or eight majors at uh, college before I found cinema. And when I decided to go to film school, I had to leave Berkeley because they didn't have a film school. And I had too many units to transfer to UCLA, so I went to SC. So did I, by the way. You did. I did. Anyway, there's more to say about that. But it uh, it was a good time to go there. But I, in those days, there was a very big difference between the student bodies of UCLA who were much more diverse and much more into political filmmaking and SC, which was much more Hollywood-like filmmaking. And in retrospect, I think I learned more at SC, even though I left SC after a year to go to grad school at UCLA because I wanted, uh, I thought I wanted to make documentaries, but I knew I wanted to make political films and SC was not the best place for that. Wow. Like, uh, like, were you influenced by, like, Robert Downey and those, that world? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I was really more influenced by, um, the great thing about UCLA was that that you could learn a lot about um, African cinema, South American cinema, Asian cinema. Yep. Yep. And uh, so I, I was exposed to um, all kinds of very interesting filmmakers and filmmaking. And and then I would I was just at the right place. I mean, this my whole life feels this way. I've been working on a memoir, and I just feel like I've been at the right place at the right time for me. So mm-hmm. there was a Cuban delegation that came to Los Angeles, and because I um, my first film had been an all black cast of the black working uh, black workers at a factory that go on strike, and uh, because uh, I had a very kind of left wing distribution company representing that film. They were called Tricontinental Films, then they became Unifilm. Uh, I was asked to photograph the Cubans on their trip to L.A. And I got to meet Tomas Gutierrez Alea, who did Memories on Development, which to this day is one of my favorite films. And, uh, wow. And I got, and I, and, and it just kind of stayed with me that, uh, there were these very interesting radical films that were getting made at the time that only because I was a film student did I know about them. And that led me to taking my film overseas, and I tell this story with some amount of humility, but I didn't know you just couldn't go to the Cannes Film Festival. I didn't know you had to be invited. So, so this ignorance gave me a great opportunity. I just got on I bought a charter flight. In fact, it was, I think it was Icelandic Airlines. Of course it was. And, uh, I had to, I had to fly, um, I had to fly through Luxembourg, I think. Wow. And, uh, and ended up with my print under my arm going to, uh, the Cannes Film Festival uninvited. Right. And when I got there, uh, I, I uh I realized you could for I think it was around fifty dollars at the time a screening you could get you could buy for a hundred dollars you could buy two screenings in the film market. And uh 
so I decided to screen the movie there because I couldn't screen it in the festival because I wasn't invited. And somehow, somebody saw the movie and told the president of the jury that year, who was uh, my hero, Costa Gavras, Constantine Costa Gavras, the French Greek filmmaker, yeah. about the film. And he was interested. And so one night when I was kind of in uh, the depths uh, of realizing that nobody was going to, you know, nobody from the festival was going to see the movie, I got a phone call from Costa Gavras, who invited me to come meet him for breakfast the next morning. And it began a lifelong relationship because he's, to this day, he's still my mentor. And, uh, wow. and, and, uh, he then said he couldn't see the movie in Cannes, but if I came to Paris, he would screen it. And so I did. And he liked the film. And then he set up a screening at the Cinematheque with the very famous founder, uh, Henri Langlois, who then offered to give me an opening in France, uh, and just, this is what I say, it's like, if, if somebody says to me, how do you move forward with your career? Um, there's, you know, a hundred roads take all of them, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> just, I just continued to put myself out there in ways that had I more uh, self-awareness or if I was more shy, I would never have done. Sure. You just, you just left right into the uh, chasm. <laughs> I did. I did. I didn't, I didn't know what I couldn't do, and that was very lucky. And I think uh, nowadays I sometimes feel um, uh, held back by my, my uh, understanding of how difficult it is to raise money or to get anybody to support your movie. And uh, you really have to just push forward and believe in yourself. That's, that's sure. my advice. So here's something else I'd like to kind of pick the brain about. So when you're shooting for television, and you know clearly you've had a great success with, with, with so many shows, how much of your inspiration, how much of yourself goes into this? Because you're right, you know, it, you said it was work, but there's something yeah, that I would assume would go in. No, but of course it's it's really um, a much more similar process, and I think, and I always say this that. Being an independent filmmaker made me better at TV and vice versa because, um, you know, I would say 85% of it is exactly the same. You know, you're looking for you know, the scenes that work. You're looking to tell the story visually. Um, you still – preparation is still the key to everything. Um, and then it's personnel choosing the right – you know, when you're making an independent film, you have to have the right crew. And it's not always the most expensive or most celebrated people that, you know. Uh, I, I tell this story that when I was doing my little movie, Berkeley, um, I think it was 2005, um, I was, I, I've always turned to making these movies on my own and with my own money. And, but I, I like to integrate into the crew anybody that I've met in, mainstream TV, who I think is a good artist who wants to, you know, do something different. And so I invited um, uh, a wonderful cameraman who I'd worked with on a television series to shoot Berkeley. But three, four days into prep, I realized he just didn't have the right attitude. He was, you know, on scouts, showing up late, looking at his phone, 
because he was doing me a favor. I mean, this was a guy who was making six, seven thousand dollars a week working for free, and he didn't throw himself into it with the zeal that I would have appreciated. And uh, I realized that the guy that had shot my last independent film, Steve Burns, who had shot Manhood, was really who I needed. But Steve just didn't feel he could afford to take another, you know, month for free and work with me. And uh, I just talked Steve into it, and I had to tell the other guy that this was not the right time for us. And he said to me, wait a minute, I'm working for free and you're firing me? <laughs> and I said, don't, I said, don't think of it that way. But of course, yes, I was. Yes, exactly. You have, yeah. to, have, the right, you have, you have to have the right person. And, and yeah. I then said, I then asked Steve to shoot just two days because he lived in San Francisco at the time and I was shooting in Berkeley a little pre-shoot. And I said, just shoot this for me. And I knew what would happen. And it did that Steve shot two days and he loved it and he had fun and he then, you know, let me bring him back down to L.A. and shot the whole movie. It was great. And he did a great job. And so that's why I really, I really, uh, I can't stress enough the importance of having the right person in every position, particularly casting, but also your editor, your DP. I mean, every, every person down the line has to not just be talented, but they have to have the right attitude, you know. Yeah. I was, when I did, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say quickly, I was in the corporate world, uh, in, in music business a very long time, and I learned that lesson of never be the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> no, you want people who are better than you, of course. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. a point. And I, but and I, I don't know very, anything about I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. Yeah, that's, you know. that's fantastic. It, it, so let me take this somewhere maybe different. Um, I really yeah. want to talk about Pearl, actually. Oh, and good, because I, 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 would have, I would have made that segue for you because I was going to talk about John Bartley, the DP from Lost, who came oh. uh, and came every single day to Pearl and helped. I had a young cinematographer, and John just had a cup of coffee and stood by the camera all day, every day, helping this guy, letting the guy find the shots and find the lights himself, but being there as a resource. And uh, I think Pearl, I mean, I I guess I I shouldn't judge it myself, but I think it's a very good-looking movie for a movie shot in 17 days for virtually no money. Wow. It's a a very powerful – I I had read that it was about the uh, unfortunate uh, death of your sister. And uh, what – There there were big elements of that, yeah. It's not – Okay. It's not – straight across but it was motivated it was it was definitely inspired by that yeah i apologize it was a meta narrative essentially from from what you're doing on imagine um mm-hmm. I, i'm going to explain in a second why this really resonated with me but there was some there was a great quote that i found mm-hmm. from the usa today and one of those quotes is i wanted to explore how people heal from unimaginable tragedy and how through the kindness of others they can find love again and imagine a future there's another line that you have there that they say storytellers should write what they know. And uh, Gunter Wallach, I'm not saying that German man's name right, but he said, no, I play you roles. did very well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Maybe you should fly there. Um, I play roles who discover who I am. 
so those those statements really jumped out at me. And I want to explain something and why, because and I'm a therapist now just by trade because I went through this thing, which I will tell you, my wife jumped off a bridge eight years ago. And it was oh, extraordinarily oh, tragic, yeah. as you would imagine. Um, oh, God. Pa- so sorry. Yeah, wow. Pasadena. Thank you. Yeah, the Pasadena one, uh, what they call the suicide bridge, the Colorado Bridge. And uh, I know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah just Easter Sunday, 2013. And I got there 30 minutes late, and the cops, it was just a whole thing, you know. And um, oh, I've been trying to... I've been trying to find meaning in my life over the last eight years. And something hit me. I became a storyteller throughout this process. I would just tell stories about her all the time. And what, you know, but then I started to attach meaning to the stories themselves. And I started to codify my experiences, not just with her, but with life in general. Mm-hmm. So when you said heal from unimaginable tragedy, I have through not only the kindness of others, but also the kindness to myself. And I can now find love and imagine the future. So I really wanted to thank you. I, honestly, this is really part of it is just thanking you on the phone, Bobby. Oh, man, uh, I'm just happy if anything you should, that I can share helps other people in any way. You know, because I mean, it's, I mean, so much of my life has been through the generosity of other people that, uh, I, I, I mean, it's you realize that the biggest gift is being able to give it to back, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that is exactly right. So this this idea, and really that's what I said uh, before we actually recorded, was this whole thing is about stories for me because my thing as a therapist, not, and this is supposed to be about you, but this is kind of a thing where we're heading. My my thing is telling stories about myself and then attaching meaning to them, meaning a beginning and a middle and an end. I'm very focused mm-hmm. on tying. If I can't tie it up, that's fine too. But and it's an old Viktor Frankl thing. He's with this famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it, mm-hmm. it influenced me. So I guess my point is it resonated with me because it sounds like you found perhaps meaning in, an, in a meaningless situation. Honestly, I, I never see it that way. That's possible. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure if you haven't gone through this and, and I'm, I'm further down the road because it's now been, you know, more than 30 years for my sister, but, um, uh, I, I, I think, um, I don't know if you've ever seen, I did, Two movies based on my sister's uh, experience with oh. my sister. No, just, uh, the, the earlier one was Manhood, and huh, okay. uh, and Manhood was much more about my sister. Uh, my sister uh, was killed by her husband, yeah. uh, and she had and she had uh, in reality she had two children, and I'm very close with one of them, and um, and so I I, I based Manhood about um manhood kind of, pearl kind of starts where manhood ends manhood <laughs> ends with the death and pearl kind of starts with the death and and i was trying to to find meaning in uh, uh in that movie and uh if you see that movie you realize that um it's it's the taking care of the um the son that's left behind that mm. uh, that is where uh, 
my main character that's based on me uh gets his meaning and uh so um but i have to i have to interrupt myself to say to you that if anybody asked me what would you do if you hadn't become a filmmaker my answer is always the same i would have been a therapist <laughs> and, oh. uh, why is that and so because well two things one is i I've had an incredible relationship with my, uh, I've had the same therapist now for, I don't know, 16 or 17 years. Wow. And, uh, and that's been incredibly rewarding. But also, I just, my joke used to be that I'd rather work, uh, do work that help people rather than work that hurts people. Hmm. But I'm kidding. I don't think cinema hurts people. I'm joking. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but I, I, I have to say one other funny thing that I did a movie in France, the Volrov movie, France and Germany in, in uh, 1989, and I noticed this very bizarre thing on my crew that almost everyone on my crew, and they were obviously filmmakers, it was my cinematographer, it was my production designer, it was one of my producers, was married to a therapist. <laughs> and and I thought, that's such a good couple. And 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 if it was a and if the film person was a male, then it was a female therapist, and vice versa. And uh, so there is definitely a great a great book to be written or movie to be made about the relationship between cinema and uh, psychotherapy. And I, I might you might be the person to make it. I, I very Chris Lang. I could pull them all in. They had meta narratives. <laughs> Man Ray, <laughs> come on. <laughs> sure. That's a yeah. And to be honest with you, actually, part of the reason why I want to get into where uh, M in the therapy world is because I want to help artists. Because I am one, unfortunately or fortunately, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I know how we I know how we think, which is radically different than others. So I, I want to take my traumas, my tragedies, turn poison into medicine, and help art, uh, help artists who have imposter syndrome or addiction and PTSD, and I can kind of walk all those walks. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, but well, I, I did not see our interview going this way, Jeff. But it's good. I know. I know. No one does. <laughs> they don't see me coming. <laughs> That's good. No, it's good. No, you don't want to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just about art. I, mean, I, I keep telling people this sometimes when I do these. And I say this is just really about art and life and the expression of both and what's a you know the creative process like. People often say, and I do too, that sometimes when you're an artist and you have you create something, it, you have to get it out. There comes a point when you just say, "This is it." Yeah. And but I often know, ask, it, 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 I'm just going to acknowledge that we seem to be living in a, and I, I I say this with some regret, at a time when I haven't heard any political discourse at all about the importance of art in our lives. And that alone talks about the poverty of this particular system at this time. You know, the Democrats, the Republicans, elections come, elections go. Nobody is talking about, forget even funding for the arts. They're not even talking about the importance of art. You know, to those, to those people, it seems like what they can get from an artist in terms of promoting their politics is, is, is the beginning and end of it all. And it's a shame because I think it's gonna it's gonna be a while before we acknowledge the importance of art and, and the reason that it's been around our through time immemorial. 
you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I didn't think about that angle. And when you, you can go back to like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young doing Ohio, right? Yeah. And, you know, the time, you know, uh, Sam Cook, uh, time is going to, or, uh, um, not time is going to come with the Isley brothers. Change is going to come. Or Marvin Gaye yeah. or any of these, any of these legends. We don't have any of that. Zero. Well, the right has their Toby Keith, but <laughs> you're, <laughs> that's so unfortunate. Well, do, do, do you know who, do you know who my brother-in-law is? I don't know if you know. Uh, Toby Keith? <laughs> no, no, no. Who? Go the other way. My brother-in-law is Bruce Springsteen. And, oh. Uh, oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I thought you might have gotten it just from seeing Pearl and seeing who wrote the songs. And uh, I didn't catch any of that. I'm a, I'm a Dumbo. My goodness. Um, the original, the original songs are from my sister-in-law Patty Scalfa Springsteen. Yeah. And uh, and and Bruce is actually playing on uh, two of them. <laughs> but you know, for 30 years we've been talking about what we do and 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 what's important sure. about it gives people yeah. yeah yeah you know don't forget you even had um Woody Guthrie with that famous guitar you know this machine you know kills fascists yeah and that's what that's what yeah, I'm friends with uh, when you when you finally when you ever see Berkeley you'll see that uh you know who Tom Morello is right absolutely I saw that you did a video with him I did yeah, but Tom is Tom acts and did music for Berkeley. My little the movie about that's based on my time in Berkeley. Oh, and, yeah, that's that my my doing Tom's videos is repaying him for him doing my movies. <laughs> Wonderful, that's fantastic. I, I honestly I did not think about this. Thank you so much for illuminating this. That there's there's a dearth of that in I mean, at least good protest music anywhere right now. That I can think of. Yeah, and obviously, and in, and in a bigger sense, not just the stuff that's overtly political, but just, just, you know, in terms of lifting one's spirits or, yes. or, or, or giving people something, um, you know, the, the great thing, I, I, I'm a museum goer, I've always loved it. And the idea that, you know, when I'm in a place like France, I'm, every day I'm going to look at art. You know, and it, it just feels like it, it enriches my life. And there, anybody can do it. I mean, it's not out of it's not out of sight financially for people. You know, uh, I, I worry when I see, you know, that what it cost to what it costs to see Bruce on Broadway. Yeah, out of out of reach for any normal person. You know. Yeah. And uh, he worried about it too. You know. Yeah, I can, anyway, I'm I, sorry, I was digressing. No, 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 no. I, actually, you are regressing. No, not regressing. <laughs> anyway, you're going the right way. You're pro, pro, progressing. That's the word. Um, okay. It, I'm English guy, obviously, you know, lit guy. Anyway, I am the the whole museum thing too is so interesting because I'm a museum guy myself as well, and. It's heartbreaking how empty they are, but it's it's fulfilling for me. But you know, budgets could slash, and nobody cares about art anymore. And if you ask me, it's, so it's just nice to hear you say that. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think that we'll be able to judge, you know, progress in our society when when people uh, avail themselves and 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 catch on. Because I I uh, I mean I'm I'm working on this book, a memoir 
trying oh. to tell, uh, trying to take all these stories and put them into one larger story. And, uh, and when I realized where I came from, not that it was so poor, my parents were, were, you know, um, middle class people, but, but there was, it was poor in terms of, you know, their idea of music was Mantovani. <laughs> uh, their idea, their idea of painting were the keen, big-eyed girls. Oh. I mean, I mean, uh, I, there was, and, and then you realize that you can open, you know, on your own, you can open the door. And it's like, I took Bruce to, uh, I believe one of the first black and white films he'd ever seen. Really? We, we, we go back quite a long way. I met him in 83. And, uh, and then watching, you know, him go, a guy who, who never, you know, he, I think he had one semester of college and now we're constantly reading the same books and talking about, you know, Philip Roth or Cormac McCarthy or, or, yeah. you know, uh, and, and anybody can be open to this stuff. They just need to, they need help getting into it and they need the right guide, you know, and, uh, I like it that you're a guide, especially as a therapist. That's, that's great. Well, funny you should say that. I've always said this, uh, and I'm kind of new at this game, but I, I've done therapy all my life, too, so I know the language. Mm-hmm. But I tell people, I say, I'm a tour guide for the mind. And I envisioned it like I'm on the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland, and I've got the pit helmet, and then I've got the khakis, and I have a flashlight. And I say, you can go that way. <laughs> Right, exactly. Or, you know, that's totally your call. I'm going to illuminate this. It may be spiders and snakes. It may not be. That's your call. Mm-hmm. But I'm here to give you another perspective, another reframe. So that's that's kind of how I do it. Yeah, but that's, you know, I mean, I, I think the the one thing that has to happen before uh, either of us can, can guide people is that people have to discover uh, a desire to learn. And sure. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why. Uh, I, I mean, for me, I, I always think of it as historical that it was 19, 1970 and, uh, every, every kid I knew was like, you know, demonstrating on their college campuses and everybody was affected by the killings at Kent State and everybody, uh, you know, and, and the amazing music that came out at the time. And, uh, but I, I wonder what it takes to, to have another time like that, you know, to, to move us forward. I don't, I don't know. No. Well, I'm going to give you my little, uh, terrifying prediction because sure. to, to be an eternal student, which is what I think of myself, it requires uh-huh. humility. Learning requires yeah. humility. We in this nation have, that's gone for so many people because you know, we're so yeah. emboldened by our by our ego and narcissism and sociopathy that is that has trickled down over four years like oil and now it's bearing rotten fruit, I think at least. So now no one has humility, or very few have enough humility to learn. And I don't know how you get humility that's, back. That's, no, you're you're I, I think you're you're right and I and I and I also that's the pall over everything, and and uh, and I'm not going to make an oversweeping comment about the state of filmmaking today, but um, but with all the technological advances, I mean, all my I was talking to a friend the other day, 
who uh, one of my best friends, and he's kind of a mentor, Rob Nielsen. He's a wonderful um, Northern California filmmaker. And I said, isn't it odd that that all we wanted when we were kids was to be able to have our own movieola so we could cut our own movies? Uh, and now we are, we all have them. We all have our cameras and our phones. We all have uh, our, our editing systems and our computers. And movies did not get better. They just <laughs> You're right. You know, and right. my son and I have this argument because uh, I have a 36-year-old son who's also a filmmaker, and about when when were movies at their best? And I and I I'm sorry, I don't I I can't find an era past the 70s that excites me. Yeah. And uh, I, and I could go back, and you could talk about the 30s and 40s too, and I'd get excited. But I mean. You know, I, I, I just had this hip surgery, I think I told you, and uh, the only movies I want to watch are on the Criterion Collection. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, and I've, I've always said this, I said, after City Lights, it went downhill. <laughs> 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 I agree with you 100%. <laughs> I just slightly yeah, that's, that's pretty That's pretty <laughs> severe. That's pretty severe. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, but I think so. Why do you think that is? Why didn't film get any better with all the technology? Well, I, I think it 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 comes it, it it takes us in a complete circle to uh, our original opening about storytelling. Is that um, people seem to be alienated from their basic human need to tell their stories? You know that uh, that you know when I see I, when I see people writing now, you know. Uh, um they're they're not necessarily writing about their own experiences they're writing about what they think they can sell you know yes and uh and i understand that because they can't figure out well you know i mean the, the thing that i love about the little movies that i've made they're completely motivated by my desire to tell the story of pearl or the story in manhood or the story in berkeley or the story in uh, Jack the Dog, which was the story by divorce, or um, uh, uh, th- that's where they come from, and I think they resonate. At least I, I hope so for some people, because they're 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 not really unique. They're just the, they're my specificity resonates in a different way than Marvel's Agents of Shield, which is the show I had a really good time directing, but. Um, I don't know whose story I would be telling when I'm talking about superheroes, and, and that's what I'm working on in Turkey as well. You know, though I have to say the Turks are pretty open to uh, more intellectualism. Maybe they don't know any better. I'm, I'm, I'm huh. teasing. I'll say this, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, it's like the the few things, and, and there's and there are many good things, and they're mostly streaming. The two things that I like, uh, never on the surface, like, I don't know if you like Queen's Gambit, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I did. I did very much. And I thought, so if you had just gone to pitch, you know, a girl who plays chess uh, and her life, that might have, I don't know how that got made. But, and, and the funny thing is I had the book of that, uh, the novel that's based on in my bookshelf for huh. 20 years. And I would not have thought. Somebody, I guess Scott Frank, thought this is something that I can really, you know, 
make people relate to. And, you know, that's, that's what it's going to take. It's, it's people personalizing whatever story they're telling. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is something that as a therapist, let me just say this. I think that we are all made up of stories. I always say this, all made up of stories, but most of us don't know that, you know, it's in our DNA. And I can go back to cavemen who tell stories. Oral tradition is really what I'm talking about. And then you have the bards and then you have the griots in Africa. These people sat next to canes. They were lauded. They were admired. Um, and you can have generational stories, obviously, too. Stories about grandpa, stories about the flood, stories about the Peloponnesian War. And it just keeps going down through generations. And yeah. it's, we stopped that. The oral tradition is almost dead, except for recipes. That's the one thing I realized is that recipes are stories. Specifically in collectivist cultures like Mexico with great Mexican food or Asian food, because mm-hmm. they just pass down these recipes as stories. But in terms of beginning and a middle and an end, there's no beginning and a middle and an end for a lot of people. So, as a, and this is what caught my eye about the stuff that you wrote, it was that as a storyteller, which I am, I now encourage my clients to become storytellers and give me a beginning and a middle and an end, and then we yeah. co-create a meaning. So, well, that, that's one I, I, I really haven't uh, studied writing uh, from, I mean, I took it in film school, but I only, I only uh, went to one guy uh, who was a writing teacher in my adult life, and it's, he's a poet named Jack Grapes. And, uh, and he had this amazing ability to dig it out of everybody. You'd, 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 I'd start, I started a class with him and there were maybe 25 or 30 people in his living room. And the first week I just thought, this is a bunch of dullards. And the (laughs) second week he was already bringing out and people who I thought had nothing to say had plenty to say. And by the third week I'm on the edge of my seat listening to every one of them. Because you're right, everybody's got got these stories, and their unique perspective. You know, it, it, I just I just finished. It's a pretty deep and depressing read, but I just finished the biography of Philip Roth, who's one of my favorite novelists. And um, and you realize that the amount of uh, research he did for his books, and he would go and you know, three, four times and spend a day at a glove factory writing about a character who owned a glove factory. But wow. he didn't take anything from those guys. He just wanted to know the specifics of what this guy's product was. Interesting. And I, I think those of us, I was lucky. My dad, my dad uh, allowed me to work for him when I was a kid from 13 to 18. My dad had a little factory that made uh, a thing called tactless strip, which is the little boards with nails on both sides that you nail carpet, wall-to-wall carpet down. Oh there. yeah, yeah. And uh, and so for every summer for five years, I got to listen uh, to real working people, people of color, black and Hispanic people, uh, people with very different backgrounds from me, and that's where all my early movies came from. I mean. My first film is the story of this guy, Fred Parker, who I met him when I had just gotten out of graduate school where I had spent the last six years and he had just gotten out of prison. 
And his story was much more interesting to me than my own, but I was able to personalize his story. I could relate to his story and I could think, what if that had been me? And what, and then I could look at his relationship with his girlfriend who became his wife and what they were going through. And then what would happen? And then I would able to expand it further and take him out of his real life and say, well, what if he had gone to work at a factory that went on strike? And, and then, and that's where, so my stories were grounded in human beings, but they weren't necessarily documentary stories. They were, they were my playing with those realities. And, sure. and, and that's what Roth, all my favorite novels, Philip Roth, uh, and very different people, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Walter yep. Mosley, they're all looking, they're all looking in the windows of the people in their neighborhood and, and trying to make their own story of those lives. Fascinating. And that makes perfect sense yeah. because what you're saying essentially yeah. is, so let's say I'm going down a street and I see somebody in a window, a woman in a window, and I create the story perhaps based on that experience of who she might be. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, you know, God. and then you might mix that with a girlfriend of yours that you've broken up with but you knew her relationship with her father who abused her or something. And then that, and what if that person, I mean, you know, all of my characters are composites. And uh, I think most of us do that, that, uh, you know, there's a little of you in there. There's a little of a friend of yours in there. There's a little bit of, of you know, I, I, I've had some rough relations with uh, people I've worked with like Anthony Quinn or Robert Blake. And those guys, they're finding their way into my characters all the time, you know. Yeah. I, my my ex-brother-in-law who killed my sister, um, I I was very interested in what made him who he was, you know. Of course. Uh, uh, yeah. What's fascinating? What's fascinating is that I there, there's a woman named Marsha Lenahan, who's very famous in the psychology world. Mm-hmm. And she called it hallucinations, which I love that term, is when you're looking at someone and you're having a sort of emotional or hallucination on just who they are. Uh-huh. That's interesting. And, yeah, it was, I like the phrase for it. Um, and that might be what we're kind of talking about, where you see any experience and you kind of imbue your own personal story into it. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I've... If I bear it in any direction, I put too much of me in there, and then that's caused problems with my family and uh, my. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to believe yeah. that. I don't blame you. <laughs> but you know, everybody. I, when I'm when I read Philip Philip Roth got eviscerated by his ex-wife, and it's funny because you brought up Chaplin. And uh, he was married to Claire Bloom, who was uh-huh. in, uh, I guess it was Limelight. And yep. uh, and uh, she wrote her own book, Skewering Him, uh, <laughs> uh, for for the references to, to her in his books. You know, it's I, I asked Bruce because, you know, uh, uh, I, I like the relationship between music and, and cinema. And uh, I asked Bruce because I didn't know it at the time that I first heard the song. Do you know the song, The River? Off of, of course. The River album? There's a line in it that says, 
And I got Mary pregnant, and man, that was all she wrote for my 19th yeah. birthday. I got a union card and a wedding coat. And only years later did I realize that his sister got pregnant at 17 and married Nikki, who amazingly, they're the two greatest people together. They've been together 50 years, but that's how they started. And I said, uh, did you ever ask your sister's permission? <laughs> and he just laughed at me. And I said, so what do you think our um, responsibility is? And he says, well, to be kind and to tell the truth, you know. And that's those are good words to live by for those of us who decide to, you know, the Woody Allens of the world or the Philip Roths of the world or the Bobby yeah. Roths of the world or stealing from real people's lives. You know, what is the best presentation of it, you know? So, so dead on. I want to take another turn here because I am dying to ask you this question. So speaking of music and film, how did you get Tangerine Dreams into the soundtrack for Heartbreakers? Amazing. Oh, that 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 uh, that was fortuitous for me. Uh, I was friends at the time. I, I this is this is one of those things that you can't you can't program. This this is just luck. Uh, I bought a house when I was first with my son's mom. Uh, we bought a house up in Laurel Canyon, and on my block, I lived across the street from Michael Mann. The filmmaker. Okay. Yep. And Michael and I became friends. And Michael did a movie called Thief, which was basically oh, yeah. his first feature. And he used Tangerine Dream. So Michael yeah. introduced me to Edgar Foyze, uh And then uh, I, I actually had a much longer standing. I think uh, Tangerine Dream only did that film and uh, and The Keep with Michael. I and mean, they were done in that relationship. But um but I, I've gone on, I, I think I've made over 20 movies with either the band Tangerine Dream or Christoph Franke, who was one of the originals, uh, who did, you know, all of my scores. And then ironically, the score for Pearl was done by Paul Haslinger, who was in Tangerine Dream. Did you wow. know that? No, no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, Paul, Paul joined the band in, I think, like the late 80s, and uh, he replaced Johannes. Uh, you know, it was only three guys, the band. Uh, sure. And uh, Edgar was the founder, and then Christoph Franke, who left to come to America, and Johannes was replaced by Paul Haslinger. And so uh, in 1988, I did a movie called uh, Dead Solid Perfect for HBO. And yeah. uh, you normally wouldn't think of a golf movie with the Tangerine Dream school, <laughs> but I did. Yeah. I just thought it was so different that uh, I wanted to do it. And, uh, and so I've stayed friends with those guys and I hadn't, I hadn't worked with Paul since, um, at maybe 1990. And he's now become kind of a very successful guy who couldn't really, I couldn't afford him under any circumstances to do the score for Pearl, but he did it anyway. So, wow. Uh, and was just great. You know, That's amazing. Even after I was satisfied. This is how that band operated. Even when you were satisfied, they kept working on it to make it better. Uh, I just can't say enough about all of them. Edgar, well, you know, uh, Paul, they're just amazing guys. That's fantastic. And, you know, that actually leads to my final Jeopardy question. If you're ready for it, sir. All right. Yes. This is for all, this is, this is for all the money. When do you know <laughs> you're done? When do you know you're done? When every cut I make makes it worse. 
Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is a question that I just – it's my favorite question to ask any creative because I get – Yeah, I'm, no, but I, I love the – I love the – I don't know if it was Truffaut or Louis Mal who said films are not completed, they're abandoned. And, no. Uh, I, I mean, what's, what I feel good about is when I – as I evolve in my independent filmmaking – um, I realized that the, the best thing that independents have going for them is there is nobody waiting for your completed movie. There is no limitation <laughs> yeah. on editing time. So especially with the advent of digital editing, which we can do, make the cuts, the te technical part of it goes very quickly, but you can still, the, the thing that I think, and I think this has hurt contemporary movie making, because we can cut so fast, we do. But I took six months to cut Heartbreakers because huh. that's what it took. But every time somebody had to go into the next room and get a box with both yep. the sound and the picture separately and thread it up and run it through the synchronizer and then into the flatbed, there was conversation going on at all times between my editor and me. And, and that's what I think made the movie so good. I mean, if you had seen some of the early cuts, of some of my movies, they were unwatchable. And it's interesting, uh, I share this with you there, I'm friends with a man named Tom Zimney, who's a filmmaker who specializes right now, at least in documentary, and mostly the music business, and he's he's uh, he's directed a bunch of Bruce's movies, and he's, he did the Elvis uh, four hour for HBO. Anyway, he's a great guy, a great filmmaker. And, um, and, what I what I what I've learned from him about the, about the documentary is that you just have to try everything, you know. And the more out there, it's it's kind of like screenwriting. It's the more out there you can be. Well, what is this? And what? And, yeah. and then, I mean, and so all of these games that that actors and stage directors have been playing for years, where the actors switch roles to see what it's like to be the other guy, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm for all of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing where the ideas come from, but the important thing is to have ideas. Yep. And I think we're living at a time where people are in such a hurry to finish things and their thinking becomes so narrow because they're scared. You know, but I, I'm not the biggest fan of, um, no, nomad land, but, um, but the fact that, uh, somebody saw that as a potential movie is impressive to me. Right. You know? um, that, that, that I just don't think the filmmaking and the storytelling was as good as I think it could be. But, um, and I'm a big stickler, uh, and this is a point of contention with me and Rob. I like actors. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to work with non-actors, and I don't want to work with half-ass actors, because I have seen what a good... I mean, I got very lucky on Pearl. Anthony took forever. Yeah. So I hired another. I took it. I hired another actor, and then Anthony finally said, "Yeah, he wanted to do it," and I was stuck with somebody else. And luckily for me, that other guy flaked on me, and that was just the heavens opened up, and I called Anthony, and he came back, and the other guy never would have been. Anywhere near as good as Anthony, and Anthony, you know, for me makes the movie. 
And for whatever time I got left, I want the Anthony LaPaglia's of the world or the John Ritter's of the world or the Henry Winkler's. I want those people, you know, who are just tremendous talents, but they're filmmakers too, and they're with you. And uh, there is something, I, I don't want to jinx myself by saying this, but there is something about underpaying people that mm. there is no question of why they are there. True. True. You're right. I would have never thought of that. <laughs> and and I, I don't want people to accuse me of saying, well, you don't pay people because you think you're <laughs> going to do better work. You know, I don't pay people because I don't have the money often, but uh, – but, um, uh, it's just great to know that you're all there for the same reason and you're all invested you know, in, in the piece. You're all invested in art, which is a perfect yeah. way to send this off. Um, great. So thank you thank you so much for doing this with me. This has been a fantastic I, I hope you got something. I hope you got something. It was kind of not what I expected we would talk about, but it's great. Well, I hope you enjoy it. That's the point. I definitely enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I, I'm one of those uh, want to be psychiatrist or psychotherapist, <laughs> and so I love to hear. I love to hear when people, especially when people come from another discipline, to become therapists. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, I'd say just trust me; it ain't all that great. <laughs> so, I'm sure it's anyway. not, but I, but I, I have the I have the luxury of being able to idealize it because it's not me. <laughs> it's a hallucination. The hallucination we were discussing earlier. Uh, I'll take that. It's, a, it's my hallucination. All right. I appreciate the time so much. All right. Okay, Jeff. Thank you. And I can't Thanks, wait Bobby. to hear what you come up with. And you'll, I'm sure you'll let me know. Okay. We will let you know. Okay. Thanks, my friends. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.